my name is David Hampton, and as uh, Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, it's a great pleasure, privilege to welcome you this evening to the Symposium on Religious Literacy and Government, uh, with a focus on uh, immigration. It's great to see so many um, uh, well-known faces and some new guests here, so thank you so much for making the time out of busy schedules to be here. So this is our third symposium sponsored by the Religious Literacy and the Professions Initiative, made possible by the generous support of our friend and benefactor, um, Bruce McEver. So this symposium is intended to explore the intersection of religious literacy, government, and immigration. It is one representation of our commitment here at HDS to foster better literacy about religion in the service of a just world at peace across religious and cultural divides. We believe that a better understanding of the complex roles that religions play in human experience can minimize antagonisms and help to promote peaceful coexistence in local, national, and global arenas. So Pew surveys of the religious affiliation of US immigrants, along with projections about um, religious demographics in the wider world by 2050, indicate profound shifts in the religious makeup of the United States and how it compares with and relates to other parts of the world. We need to know more about the religious, cultural, and political consequences of these trends in order to cope with them and embrace them more intelligently and more peacefully. We're honored to have our own alum and colleague and good friend Sean Casey here to help us frame these issues in his keynote address for us this evening. Especially good to have you back with us. I honestly could not imagine anyone more qualified, experienced, and better informed to introduce us to this important topic than Sean Casey. He's a director of the Berkeley Center and a professor of the practice at Georgetown's Walsh School of Foreign Service, and previously was a US Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs, as well as the director of the US Department of State's Office of Religion and Global Affairs. Sean, we're really delighted to have you with us and look forward to your keynote address in, in a few moments. So please allow me just a, a moment or two to uh, express thanks to a number of people without whom we could not have convened for this conference. Um, very grateful to Bruce McEver, as I've already mentioned, for his generous and visionary support for this initiative uh, over a, a number of years now. He's been a stalwart supporter of this, and we're really grateful to him. Um, to Professors Diane Moore and um, Steve Prothero for their leadership of this initiative, bringing together uh, two great universities separated by a small river, um, uh, the, the Charles, and um, it's been one of the most exciting parts of this initiative that has brought these two universities and their expertise together. So thank you, Steve, especially for being part of that. Um, it's nice for me because I spent some time in BU before coming here, so it feels like it's a colleague again. I'm grateful to all those who have worked um, uh, tirelessly behind the scenes to organize this symposium, um, uh, uh, especially uh, Sarah Bin, uh, Levy Brightman and her uh, dedicated team around who have, have put a lot of effort and still at the table in the front desk uh, welcoming and uh, um, bringing this together. And of course I'm very uh, especially glad to welcome all the distinguished symposium participants and panelists for being with us for these timely and important conversations. I know all of you are very busy people and we don't take it for granted that you give uh, generously, generously of your time to be with us, so thank you. I'm also uh, grateful to members of the audience, both in-house and virtually, 
for your in interest and engagement in these important matters. So thank you all near and far for your support uh, and your tireless efforts in this area. It's now my pleasure to introduce you, uh, to you the main organizer of this conference, my colleague, friend, uh, Diane Moore. She's the director of the Religious Literacy Project here at Harvard and the principal investigator for the Religious Literacy and Professions Initiative. She's also a senior scholar at the Center for the Study of World Religions and a lecturer on religion, conflict, and peace at HDS. Diane, thank you so much. <clears throat> Good evening, and thank you, David, for your generous welcome, and especially for your extraordinary leadership, not only in this initiative, but in many initiatives here at HDS that have been launched under your tenure as dean. Your wisdom, compassion, and vision inspire us all. This symposium on religious literacy and government with a focus on immigration is part of a series of symposia sponsored by our generous benefactor, Bruce McGever, under the banner of the Religious Literacy and the Professions Initiative. Last December, we hosted our first symposium on religious literacy and journalism. In January, we held our second on religious literacy and humanitarian action. This one here on religious literacy and government and our final one next year on religious literacy and business that will be focused on the entertainment industry. There are three underlying assumptions that unite all of these. The first is that understanding the complex roles that religions play in human experience is an important dimension of understanding modern human affairs in all sectors of society. The second is that scholars of religion need to learn with and from professionals in a variety of fields about how conscious and unconscious assumptions about religion shape and inform professional practices and the contexts in which these practices are engaged. And third, better understanding of how religions function in particular contexts can help mitigate violence, bigotry, and prejudice and enhance better opportunities for creative collaborations in local, national, and international contexts. In short, our aim is to promote and enhance the public understanding of the power of religion in human experience in the service of mitigating the negative consequences of religion and encouraging their positive expressions. In this particular symposium, we'll be exploring the ways that religions have shaped government policies and practices regarding immigration and refugees in our contemporary context, beginning with this evening's address by our friend and colleague, Sean Casey, and continuing throughout the day tomorrow through case studies on Boston, Middle Tennessee, and the US-Mexico border. As we know, the United States is currently roiled by debates over immigration. Americans are bitterly, dis they bitterly disagree about the best ways to address the flow of people seeking residence in this nation and the place of recent immigrants and refugees in our society. These disagreements are not new. Through much of US through, throughout much of the US, the US population is comprised of immigrants though much of the U.S. population is comprised of immigrants and their descendants. Throughout history, many refugees and immigrants have faced significant antagonisms driven by anxieties about national security, the economy, 
and changing cultural norms. Often these antagonisms have had religious components, and this remains true here in our contemporary context. In this symposium, we'll be exploring how religion is embedded in both constructive and antagonistic approaches to immigration, especially with respect to work undertaken by or in collaboration with government agencies. Our goal is to explore the complicated roles that religions play in our nation's multifaceted debate over immigration and to determine how such an understanding may help government agencies better foster the constructive and humane integration of immigrants and refugees into our communities. We are extraordinarily grateful to Sean Casey for his assistance in both shaping the focus of this symposium and for his willingness to offer our keynote address. I remember vividly sitting over coffee at Pete's about a year and a half ago, brainstorming about how we might use this extraordinary opportunity and your wisdom to help us think about focusing on local governments while he was enmeshed in the State Department is a commentary on you, Sean, and also uh, we'll understand more about your vision for that role in the State Department and why you came up with this important idea soon. So thank you. I also want to thank Nadim Mazen, who will a uh, member of the Cambridge City Council for his willingness to join me in responding to Sean uh, and for his participation tomorrow. So happy to have you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I heard that you had just recent surgery, so thank you for being with us. It is also my great pleasure to warmly welcome all of our distinguished speakers that we'll have the honor of hearing tomorrow. We're grateful for your time and willingness to share your experience and expertise with us for these important conversations. And finally, before I introduce my friend and colleague, Steve Prothrow, who will introduce Sean, you know how these things go. You say welcome, and then you introduce, and then someone to introduce the, inter the speaker. So thank you for your indulgence of us. But before I do turn the podium over to Steve, I, uh, I want to ask you all to join me in thanking the two people most responsible for both the intellectual heart of this symposium as well as its organization. Sarah Levy Brightman and Lauren Kirby are remarkable scholars in their own right and masterful organizers of handling everything from case study articulation to literally the assembly of the coat racks that are outside the door. <laughs> All of us on the leadership team owe you both an enormous debt of gratitude and appreciation for all you've done to bring this symposium to fruition. Can you both please stand for us to thank you? And now, it's my pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Steve Prothero, the C. Allen and Elizabeth V. Russell Professor of Religion at Boston University, a newly named endowed chair that Steve just had the honor of receiving. So congratulations on that, Steve. Fabulous. In addition to being a prolific writer and author, Steve is our partner for the Religious Literacy and the Professions Initiative and a voice promoting the public understanding of religion in several different venues. It has just been an honor and a privilege to partner with you in this symposia series, and I'm happy to turn the podium over to you now to introduce Sean. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, Diane. I feel like I should introduce myself so we could have one more introduction. Uh, thank you uh, also, David Hempton, Dean Hempton, um, for your leadership here, and uh, Bruce, Bruce McKever as well, um, and also uh, the staff, um, including my former grad student, now PhD, Lauren Kirby. Um, I'm delighted to be back for another installment here at um, Harvard Divinity School on religious literacy and the professions. Um, when I began in uh, graduate school here some three decades ago, my focus was on religion and American foreign policy. And I eventually decided to focus my studies on Asian religions in the United States. But I never shook my own interest in religion and American politics. In fact, almost all of my work, um, at least as I read it, attends to ways um, in which what we isolate as religion and what we isolate as politics influence um, one another. Roughly 20 years ago, the Rockefeller uh, Foundation convened a group of about 10 scholars in uh, North Carolina to reflect on what religious studies uh, professors, uh, especially people focused on North America, uh, could do to contribute to the public understanding of religion. And together, we, we fixed on this notion of religious literacy. A decade or so later, inspired by that meeting, I wrote my book on religious literacy. And I've been re uh, reflecting ever since on the challenges uh, of broadcasting education about religion across American society. Um, in my religious literacy project, um, I examined religious illiteracy as a civic problem that threatens our public culture, both at home and abroad. And so this topic of religious literacy and government is especially important uh, to me. Many government actors uh, epitomize the problems of our uh, collective religious ignorance even as other government actors work very hard to address it. To some politicians, religion is something to be ignored or a talking point to play up to score uh, political points. But to many federal employees in all three branches of government, understanding religion and applying that understanding is part and parcel of what they do every day. Uh, Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State under uh, President Bill Clinton, wrote a book a few years ago called The Mighty and the Almighty. Some of you may have seen this. And in that book, she uh, makes this observation that she had hundreds of political and economic advisors she could call upon at any time of the day or night if she needed to know something about the GDP in Dubai or an upcoming election in uh, Pakistan. But um, she had no religion advisors to advise her on how religion might uh, play into the kinds of decisions that a Secretary of State of the United States might want to be making. Uh, this makes sense, this allocation of resources in the State Department, if humans are motivated purely by greed and by power, which is to say if political science and economics are the only tools we need to understand why human beings do uh, what we do and think what we think. But human beings, as I think all of us know in this room are more complicated than that. Our rituals, our beliefs about where we came from, our beliefs about where we might be going, if anywhere, um, also affect our behavior. This week, the recognition of Jerusalem um, as the capital of Israel um, is in the news. How to understand this story without knowing something about Judaism and Christianity and Islam? How to understand what's happening in India and Pakistan and Kashmir 
without knowing something about Islam and Hinduism, how to make sense of Sri Lanka without taking account for the Hindu and Buddhist uh, traditions, or for that matter, um, the so-called war on terror without some knowledge of Sunni and Shia uh, Islam. This uh, is the point uh, that the former senator of Massachusetts, uh, John Kerry, made during his time as Secretary of State. For example, during an August 2013 event launching his Office of Faith-Based Community Initiatives, he made this remark, which is now plastered on the websites of religious studies departments across the country, including one for our graduate program at Boston University. If I went back to college today, said um, Secretary of State, I think I would probably major in comparative religion because that's how integrated it is in everything that we are working on and deciding and thinking about in life today. All this is to say that the work of this symposium is more urgent than ever. Today I'm delighted to introduce Professor Sean Casey, who was introduced by Secretary of State Kerry at that August 2013 event as the man whom he had selected to lead Professor Kerry's State Department initiative, sorry, um, Secretary Kerry's State Department initiative as his special representative for religion and global affairs. Before taking up that challenge at the State Department, Professor Casey was a professor of Christian ethics at Wesley Theological Seminary, and before that, as we've heard, he was a student here at Harvard Divinity School and at the Harvard Kennedy School. He credits the late Peter Gomes with smoothing his transition from Abilene Christian University, where he received his BA, um, into the wilderness of Harvard and the People's Republic of Cambridge. <laughs> After leaving government work in the wake of the election of 2016, he landed firmly on his feet at Georgetown, where he is now professor of the practice in Georgetown's Walsh School of Foreign Service. He's also the director of the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs, where, by the way, my former editor and good friend Paul Eli is also working there. Sean is the author of uh, The Making of a Catholic President, Kennedy versus Nixon, 1960, and the co-editor with Michael Kessler of the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Political Theology. He's also working on a book project um, on ethics and international uh, politics, and his working title is Niebuhr's Children. Please welcome me in welcoming our keynote speaker for the evening, Professor Sean Casey. So. Somewhere in the middle of the sixth or seventh introduction, uh, I had a flashback to a trip to Lagos, Nigeria. And if you know anything about Nigerians, they take introductions very seriously. I was there convening a, an interfaith meeting of, of 40 religious leaders divided between Christian leaders and Muslim leaders. And it was at the 90 minute mark after we had finished all of the introductions that finally the conversation uh, Started. So I'm glad we weren't quite that Nigerian tonight, uh, but it, it, it made me think of, uh, of a very fond memory. Uh, let me begin by thanking Diane and David for this wonderful invitation to come uh, and be with you. 
Uh, I think your ongoing friendships and certainly your leadership here uh, make me very happy and very confident about the health of this institution. In particular, the religious literacy project uh, is so desperately needed in our world today in all of the sectors that you've identified over the course of your, your four convenings and, and many, many more. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for this invitation and I am honored to be here. Um, it's a double honor in that we get to talk about this fascinating space at the intersection of religious literacy uh, and government. And I think that the work you do here in this project is, is really without peer. And I hope your tribe increases across our guild of religion scholars. And I hope that we're able to convene more uh, overlapping conversations for those of us who work in government, but also considered uh, the study of religion uh, is our, our life's work. As I traveled the world uh, for three and a half years in the role I had at the State Department, I marveled at the deep, deep global desire to have these conversations and yet at the same time, the paucity of literal space and intellectual space where those conversations could go on. I actually believe the world will be a safer and more peaceful place if those of us in academia learn how to talk to those of you in government and back and forth. I think we really can make a difference on the ground. So thank you for what you do and I, I indeed hope your, your tribe increases. Before I, I, I launch into my, my actual um, lecture, I want to offer a few personal observations then draw you a map of where I hope to go. And if I get done in time, we may have some moments for, for question and answers before uh, we, we have the panel discussion. I've been incredibly fortunate over the course of my politely conceived checkered career. A lot of zigzags there, but uh, from my long sojourn as a student here at the Divinity School, then to the Kennedy School, and back to HDS, I was very lucky to be the beneficiary of, of some astonishing uh, academic firepower. But I had two professors in particular, one at the Kennedy School and one here, who modeled for me a form of vocation that you could move back and forth between academia and government or public life. At the Kennedy School, it was Richard Neustadt. And between Dick, his father, and his son, they advised every Democratic president from Woodrow Wilson uh, to Bill Clinton. Uh, and so they, they showed me you can be an academician and, but then also engage in politics. And likewise here, uh, Father Brian Hare, who had the misfortune to chair my thesis uh, while I was a doctoral student, also modeled a form of vocation that allowed him to move between the academy, work in the world, and engagement with government. And so uniquely, Harvard, I think, is poised to prepare students at this intersection going forward. And my hope is that that space can continue to grow over time. So what do I hope to accomplish in our, our, our time together in the next few minutes? <clears throat> First of all, I'll survey one space uh, along the complex boundaries between the academic study of religion and the work of government. And that's the intersection of religious literacy and the provision of government services in the US. And I'm going to argue that there's room for improvement on both sides of that equation, both the government side and also the academic side. That is, government can do better in understanding religious dynamics in their space, while scholars of religion too can do better in understanding the challenges of working in government. Uh, I won't tell you which one has the easier or harder job, uh, but we might parse that in a moment. But I, I want to hasten to add again that here at the Religious Literacy Project, this is a unique space to continue to explore this complex interaction. And second, then, to help focus my first claim, I want to reflect on my own experience in the State Department as Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs broadly. 
And then more specifically, I want to focus on our work on the refugee resettlement issues, because we spent a lot of time looking at this very complex and increasingly vexed space. And my intent then is to glean lessons uh, learned and best practices for what I saw in the work of local governments. So there is method in my madness, starting with the State Department and then moving down towards the local level, because I honestly believe at this point the real innovation in governance in America is not coming out of Washington. And if you disagree with me, we'll go in the hallway and have, have a very short conversation. Uh, the innovation I saw was at the local level, both in terms of religious actors and what governments were doing. And I had the privilege of seeing that uh, over the course of several months. I believe that both of these stories, what I did in the State Department and what I saw at the local level, can yield insights for those of us who are working in government where religion arises as a dynamic in the work. And then third, I'm gonna conclude very briefly by assessing our current political environment uh, through the lens of the growth of white nationalism and offer a preliminary assessment of the consequences for both the study of religion and the role of government in the issue area of uh, refugee resettlement and perhaps other areas too. I believe that our current national ethos increases the need to have a more sophisticated view of religion, but we're not trending in that way with respect to government services. Uh, and sadly, the current environment makes that actually harder to do. In the end, I hope to convince you that innovation is still possible when it comes to democratic uh, government entities becoming more adept at deepening understanding of religion, yet progress is fragile, it is subject to reversal, in our current vexed political time, there are counterforces that reject pluralism, that see religious pluralism as the enemy, as something to be avoided. Uh, there are forces that promote white nationalism with dire consequences for those of us who don't happen to be white Christians. Um, and uh, to ignore this political dynamic risks rendering the work of government folk at the intersection of religious literacy uh, fruitless. I recently reread Reinhold Niebuhr's classic 1944 work, The Children of Light and Children of Darkness, for a seminar I'm teaching. And if you recall, Niebuhr said that perhaps the greatest sin of the children of light is naivete in the face of the forces of evil. We should not underestimate, underestimate the political forces that are arrayed against us, assuming we're all children of light, uh, lest we fail uh, due to falling, failing to discern the signs of our times. Let me begin with the definition of religious literacy that uh, the Religious Literacy Project has promulgated. And I like this definition. Religious literacy entails the ability to discern and analyze the fundamental intersections of religion and social, political, cultural life through multiple lenses. Specifically, a religiously literate person will possess, number one, a basic understanding of the history, central texts where applicable, beliefs, practices, and contemporary manifestations of several of the world's religious traditions as they arose out of and continue to be shaped by particular social, historical, and cultural contexts. And two, the ability to discern and explore the religious dimensions of political, social, and cultural expressions across time and place. Critical to this definition is the importance of understanding religions and religious influences in context and as inextricably woven into all dimensions of human experience. Such an understanding highlights the inadequacy of understanding religions through common means, such as learning about ritual practices or exploring what scriptures say about topics or questions. Unfortunately, these are some of the most common approaches to learning about religion 
and lead to simplistic and inaccurate representations of the roles religion play in human agency and understanding. I faced the challenge. Uh, John Kerry had an intuition based on about 40 years of public life that the State Department could do better in terms of its engaging religious actors and assessing religious dynamics. He then turned to me and said, and you tell me what that better way is. Uh, so uh, I, I found myself in a very strange position, agreeing with my boss's intuition, but then having to fill in the blanks about the second half of that proposition. Uh, so what I want to explore uh, is this understanding of religious literacy a bit by trying to focus on the religious dynamics and, more and a more sophisticated engagement with religious actors in my work at the State Department. That was writ large and globally, but I believe that the, the challenges we face there are in fact translatable to the challenges that people find in a mayor's office, being elected to a city council, uh, or being simply a, a middle management person in local government. First of all, and I have three, three points to make here. I, I think first, a general religious literacy is usually seen as a luxury for many government institutions. <clears throat> we have far more pressing things to do than to go around and understand religion. It's a common complaint. And that's a very real problem, particularly in an era of limited and shrinking government resources, plus government entities that often have a very specific, sometimes narrowly focused, defined policy mission such that the breadth and depth of the needed knowledge on religion is often narrowly focused or circumscribed in terms of the interest on the part of the government office. What's often needed is expert knowledge on specific policy issues in specific religious communities. So not only is understanding context a prerequisite for understanding religion, but knowledge of the policy mission of the government entity is often a necessity, and I really appreciate the way you phrased that, uh, Diane, in your introduction. When I launched the Office of Religion and Global Affairs at State, I, I really didn't need a roster of scholars who were apologists for the need for the State Department to understand religion and take it seriously. Instead, what I needed were scholars who already knew how to interpret the political and social implications of lived religion in specific country and regional contexts. When I told Scott Appleby that, he was crushed. You know, there, there were a lot of scholars who were, in a sense, paved the way for me intellectually and I said, Scott, I, I, I don't need you. I need, I need some of your doctoral students who are studying religion in very specific uh, contexts. So I needed people who were multilingual in the sense that they understood religion, but they also understood US diplomatic priorities and organizations. And they had an ability to communicate pe to, with people on both sides of that equation. They could talk to scholars, but they could also talk to hardened policy people who were skeptical. And it's hard to find somebody who knows how to traverse both sides of that divide because there are problems and issues on both sides. Uh, the perfect candidate had training in the study of religion in a specific context, had lived in that region, had a deep knowledge of US diplomacy at the same time, and guess what? I didn't possess those skills myself. So it was very hard to build a staff of 35 and find people who knew, who had that full uh, portfolio. We approach religious literacy as an office-wide capacity, and that's what I'm gonna talk about next, that is, um, Thus, in the context of government, religious literacy is often a team or office-wide capacity and not an individual capacity. So how do we talk about religious literacy of entire offices or bureaus or teams? When I built a staff of 35, I was both thrilled by the talent but also embarrassed that we pretended to be able to interpret the complexity of religious dynamics on a planet of over 7 billion people in over 200 countries. I knew that was not the truth. 
I had some very smart, very talented people. So one of the arguments I want to make today is it a crucial part of what I'm calling, for lack of a better term, collective religious literacy or institutional religious literacy becomes uh, what sources do you turn to when you don't have sufficient knowledge of religious dynamics on your staff for an issue area or location you need to get smart in? Because working in government, you are always going to encounter mission-driven conundrums related to religion that no one in your organization is going to know the answer to instantly. So you have to develop a capacity to know who to call, to tell you who to call to who to call, to get to the person who can tell you who the Yazidis are. Now, in that particular experience, when there were 40,000 Yazidis trapped on the top of Mount Sinjar and ISIS was, was beginning to, to attack them, lo and behold, I discovered there were three registered Yazidi American lobbying groups, one in Washington, one in Lincoln, Nebraska, and one in, in Houston. They found me before I found them. Uh, but no one on my team knew anything. And some people knew about the Yazidis, but they didn't have deep knowledge. I needed deep knowledge, and I needed it yesterday. So this is one of the issues. If you're working in a government, you have a finite staff. Uh, and if you're working in the refugee space, you may find refugees coming into your city in a given calendar year from 55 different countries. And you probably aren't going to have 55 different staffers, one for each of those communities. So how do you develop a capacity to reach out and get smart when you're facing such an amazing array of religious communities? Secondly, there's also a danger here of elitism, uh, when in fact I think humility is a better posture. If you work in a government setting where religion figures significantly, you're always going to be challenged by these, these situations and communities that your knowledge is very thin in, if it exists at all. Uh, I hope on both sides that academics can become more humble in, in understanding the plight of government workers who find themselves overwhelmed with complexity. And at the same time, I hope people in the government can also be humble enough to pick up the phone and call religion scholars. Uh, there was one time at the State Department I encountered a religion scholar who said in a blog post, give me one semester and I'll teach John Kerry everything he knows in, about religion if he'll come and take my seminar. Now, needless to say, I don't think John Kerry ever saw that. Uh, but at the same time, my first reaction was, you know, what I want to do, pal, is to say, come to my, uh, my symposium on diplomatic illiteracy, and I can render you a whole lot smarter in terms of giving free advice to secretaries of state. But needless to say, I could not have gotten that past my minders. Um, so among, to my brother and sister in the religion guild, uh, I just want to encourage people to venture into the mutual dialogue with government practitioners and do it as equal partners, not as teacher to pupil, but indeed you can learn in the process in interacting with government officials. I'm astonished at the level of religious literacy I saw particularly in the refugee resettlement centers I visited around the country. I was the pupil in many of those conversations about the religious dynamics on the ground that they were facing. <clears throat> So let me then talk first now about what we tried to do in terms of innovation at Foggy Bottom and then pivot to uh, what I saw in terms of refugee resettlement in the United States. One of the most sobering moments in my life came the day I was sworn in in Foggy Bottom, in July of 2013. Uh, they wheel you into a room, they tell you raise your right hand, they give you an oath, and then boom, 20 seconds later, they, they've kicked you on and there's another person in the queue to give the same oath to. Uh, they move you into a space that's euphemistically called transition. 
and it's like a cinder block room with a single light bulb hanging down. No, it's not quite that bad, but it, it was close to that. Uh, it's on the first floor of this massive building, main stage, or the Harry S. Truman Building. I had a phone, I had a computer that did not work, I had, a st I had no staff, and I had a wastebasket. Okay, and I camped out there for three weeks, thinking, oh joy, this is what life in the State Department's going to be. Now, very quickly after that, um, I got an office on the seventh floor. Now, you have to understand, um, the State Department is a place where real estate size and office location is like the highest form of political tender. Now, the contrast was I had been teaching in a Methodist seminary where I had an office in the sub-basement of a dormitory that was 60 years old and was slowly, literally turning to dust. Students had to hire field guides to locate my office. And when they arrived, they wondered out loud, what administrator had I alienated to earn such a desolate location for my office? Uh, so to move into this setting where people would walk into your room and they would count the room, count the windows, survey what floor you on, were on and what corridor you were in, where literally location meant everything, was just a wave of cognitive dissonance for me coming from a very different academic background. So we got prime office location. I got a roster of promote, uh, positions to fill, and we got a budget. Um, one of the things that saved me is I knew what I didn't know. And that is, I immediately set out to find helpful veterans who could help teach me what the State Department was like, how it was organized, and help recruit people who knew what I didn't know about how it was run. A friend told me that the hallways of the department were littered with the bleached bones of academics who came to the State Department hell-bent on bending the will of the 70,000 workers there to their views. That intimidated me somewhat. Because <clears throat> I had thought those kinds of thoughts. Um, now, I knew Secretary Kerry and his staff very well from a past history, and I knew their work style. So I was pretty confident about those relationships. But having never organized anything larger than a 15-person graduate seminar that lasted for exactly 14 weeks, uh, I had a lot to learn, and I found tutors. I think that's very critical. If you're working in government, you have to be able to interpret the context you're working in. And it's as complex as any religious community you can name. The central organizing principle of the State Department is a slow motion train wreck. Between, on the one hand, six regional bureaus, which are populated by careerists who see themselves as analogous to the Marines. They're the real soldiers in the State Department. And it's through which these six bureaus that US policy is formulated and sent out and 200 embassies and posts report back to Washington through those six regional bureaus. They see themselves as the real State Department, and they don't necessarily like political appointees like me. On the other hand, they're functional bureaus that address cross-cutting global issues such as human rights, economic issues, military affairs, climate change, and non-proliferation issues, and the ongoing train wreck between these two sorts of bureaus poses real problems for an office like mine, which is in the Secretary's Bureau, which is neither fish nor fowl. In other words, regional and functional bureaus look at me skeptically because I'm not, a, I'm not either, either type. So I suddenly learned I was in a very complicated bureaucratic location, and I had to constantly be aware uh, as the guy, the religion guy, who was supposed to get all of them smarter, 
I had to take a, a posture of collaboration in trying to show that I could improve the performance of both sets of offices or I would be kicked to the curb almost instantly and ignored. Um, historically, then, the State Department has seen religion in three ways. One, the classic internationally renowned way is to ignore it and hope that it goes away. But it just keeps popping up. So uh, Secretary uh, Albright wrote her book. John Kerry read that book, and it was yet decades after Madeline wrote the book that finally somebody got around to trying institutionally to respond. The second way the State Department viewed religion was foisted on them by Congress almost exactly 20 years ago, and that was through the lens of international religious freedom, which has, let's just put it briefly, a vexed 20-year history. And I'm happy to tell you stories about that, but not at this particular time. And the third response, which is perhaps the most problematic of all, was called countering violent extremism, which proved to be a highly problematic reductionist approach to Muslim communities and countries. We had to find a different way. We were not doing religious freedom. We were not trying to transform bad Muslims into moderate Muslims. And we had tremendous philosophical problems with that. I ended up among my 35 employees having eight Muslim staffers working for me. I had as much intellectual firepower, brain power, and understanding the Muslim world of any federal office outside the intelligence community. And our work was cut out for us. Because even in this administration, the previous administration, while we went from the global war on terror to countering violent extremism, and now we're back into defeating radical Islamic terrorists, in my professorial hat, it's from ter F territory to maybe C minus territory and back to F territory. Now, I'm proud of a C minus versus an F, uh, but I historically like to do better than C minus. So we had a lot of work to do uh, in, the, in the context of how the Obama administration uh, framed its outreach and our understanding of religion. The second dynamic I encountered was how to build a staff with a coherent mission and the requisite skill to bring a more sophisticated approach uh, than the existing ones. And I, you know, I, we had ended up with 20 people out of the 35 who had a graduate degree either in religion or a closely allied cognitive field. And I'm deeply proud of the expertise we brought into that office. Uh, <clears throat> we created a mission. It was threefold. One was to advise the secretary when religion cut across his portfolio, which meant just about every day. Uh, second, we wanted to equip embassies, posts, and bureaus to engage religious actors and assess religious dynamics with more sophistication. And third, uh, we were the portal through which any external actors or stakeholders could inquire about what the State Department did in their interest areas. So you have to understand the context you're in, and then you have to develop a very concrete mission in that context if you're trying to bring your government institution into a more sophisticated understanding of the role of religion. You can't just hire somebody to do religion and have them float from issue to issue or crisis to crisis because they will have no institutional impact over time. Um, <clears throat> the last aspect of the office I want to, to mention, actually I'm, I'm gonna skip, I'm, I'm doing some self-editing here uh, in the interest of time. Um, so what does my State Department story have to do with religious literacy uh, compared to the work of you who work in local government? Let me list five key lessons here. Number one, senior leadership, senior leadership support is crucial. John Kerry in that speech that Stephen referred to gave me a get out of jail free card. I can knock on any door in the State Department and they may not be happy to see me, 
They may not want to talk about religion, but because the big boss said, play nicely with this guy, I, I had uh, uh, some credibility and freedom to go door to door. Some people loved it. I could tell some people hated my presence there. But if you don't have senior leadership, and you're in the persuasion business, I suspect, as I was, trying to, to promote the concept that religious literacy will make us more effective as a government agency. Not everybody in the government agency is going to buy that. And if you don't have senior leadership investment, your marketing, your mission, however you describe it, is going to be hard to sell if you don't have senior leadership support. Secondly, I think the definition of your mission has to be concrete in order to convince or woo doubters. Now that was the beauty of what I saw, and I'm going to talk about in a minute, about the refugee resettlement centers. Mayors and city councils and school districts and superintendents and teachers uh, and all kinds of government entities at the local level have to deal, they're compelled by law to take the, 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 uh, the uh, public school aged kids who show up at the door on the first day of the beginning of, of, of school in September. No matter where that student has been or where they have not been, no matter what their religion is, no matter what their country of origin is, they have to educate that person by law. So it's very concrete work when you're trying to help a refugee transition, say, from Syria to Des Moines, Iowa. That is not an abstraction. There are a very set, concrete set of things that you have to do if you're part of the refugee resettlement process in a city. So your, your mission needs to be clearly and concretely identified. Thirdly, I think collaboration across government offices and civil society is key. <clears throat> you have to show how you're going to help others succeed to persuade them to be your partner in understanding religious dynamics in the, at the local government level. Fourthly, Religion is so complex, you have to be a permanent learning organization. If you look at the number of people on the move today, we are at historic global records. There are something like 21 million formal refugees today. There are over 40 million internally displaced people, that is people who have not crossed an international border. And then if you just talk about people on the move, Beyond that, depending on who you talk to, there are another 200 to 300 million such people. The drivers of this human mobility are not decreasing. They are only increasing. So uh, <clears throat> the work, and is if, if, if indeed our country stays in the business of, of resettling refugees, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, you know you're going to have to be constantly learning about new communities uh, showing up in your own community if you're in the business of providing government service. So the demand in this space, at least in the United States, is not going down anytime soon. It's going to continue to grow. And then fifthly, understanding your political and geographical context is also uh, essential. Uh, at the local government level, I suspect you encounter skepticism regarding all forms of religion, and you are in the persuasion business, and that's why it's very, very important that you understand the political environment you're located in, whether it's city government, whether it's county government, state government, uh, or just simply the civil society itself, uh, because it's not getting easier, it's getting even more complicated in that space politically. So what I want to do now is to segue to the second area of innovation, which is how the U.S. government collaborated with local governments and non-governmental organizations to resettle tens of thousands of refugees every year. Now, I have to confess, as an alleged scholar of public-private partnerships, I did not know until I got into the State Department that the State Department actually pays for the first 90 to 120 days of a refugee's life in the United States. 
That also gave me a credit card to travel the country and visit these resettlement centers in the United States. It's the only domestic issue space that the State Department owns. <clears throat> the way the State Department does this is that we have nine implementing partners, nine agencies that do the literal refugee resettlement work. Six of those nine agencies are religiously affiliated. And again, I thought I knew this space of, of sort of government faith-based partnerships, and I didn't know about this, perhaps the largest, and I would argue most successful, such partnership in American political history. Now, as you recall, when ISIS began to grow and suddenly there was a refugee flow coming out of Iraq and Syria, uh, we did have a global refugee crisis on our hands, the likes of which we had never seen, which it continues to grow this day. I spent several months from December 2015 to the middle of 2016 visiting six refugee resettlement centers, and I picked some places where I knew there were vexed local and state political environments. So I went to Jersey City, New Jersey. I went to Baltimore, Maryland. I went to Dallas, Texas. I went to Phoenix, Arizona, Des Moines, Iowa, and Chicago, Illinois. <clears throat> and almost, I guess with, what, one exception, those cities we're in states where governors have said, no, 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 we don't, we want, we don't want more Muslim refugees in our, in our state. Now, luckily for us, uh, governors don't have the power to, to, to stop the refugee flow. That's a federal issue. So refugees continue to go into all six of these states despite some of the really stupid things their, their governors have said. But I was interested in seeing what was it like on the ground. What was it like to be a Syrian Muslim refugee in New Jersey when the governor at that time had said some really awful things about Muslims writ large, and Syrians in particular, uh, because I wanted to see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears what was actually happening. So with an eye to seeing just how those partnerships were working and to see what the lessons to be learned were and what the best practices were at this intersection of religion and, and government service precision, I, I hit the road. And what I saw is that this system relies on an array of local networks uh, religious leaders, religious communities, non-governmental civil society organizations, social service providers, schools, police departments, municipal government leaders, and individual volunteers to make this process possible. The success of the refugee process in the U.S. has required what I call a whole-of-society collaboration. And to my mind, it was one of the best, yet woefully undertold good news stories about effective public-private partnerships. In late September 2015, President Obama signaled the U.S. government's commitment to address this issue by hosting a leader summit on refugees in New York as part of the U.N. General Assembly opening week, which was a way to secure new commitments from 52 countries and organizations to increase humanitarian funding and to find more, more services. President Obama soon thereafter signed a presidential determination authoring authorizing the admission of 110,000 refugees in the U.S. in fiscal year 2017. Uh, and very soon after that, uh, we actually had met our goal from the year before of welcoming 85,000 of the world's most vulnerable refugees from all different regions of the world. Over the course of my travels, I interviewed or talked with about 100 to 120 refugees, all of whom had recently come to the States. I heard their stories. I learned of the incredible work of local resettlement offices and I saw the support that local religious communities were providing in new ways uh, that were sort of historically unprecedented. In Jersey City, I met 20 refugees from seven countries. This was my first visit. It was in December of 2015. We're in this airless room. There are 20 of us crammed in there, 20 people from seven different countries. I'm at the front looking very white male, State Department. Uh, and and I'm, I'm just asking them questions. What's it like? 
and the, the U.S. refugee system is premised on early work. Unlike Europe, where a number of companies give you language training and cultural training and, and then segue into work, in America, we, we put you to work very fast. So there I was in a room. Some people were lawyers, some had been doctors, some were engineers, some were psychologists, and almost all of the adults were working, sweeping New Jersey office buildings on the graveyard shift from midnight to late in the morning. They're working for minimum wage. Very few had cars. One painter told me that he lived in Jersey. He painted apartments in Manhattan. And he was spending almost $400 a month on commuting out of the thousand or so dollars he was getting from the US government. It was a tale of woe. And there, there was one family on the front, a, a Syrian family, a, a, a mother, wife, husband, and a two and a half year old child who was just absolutely incandescent with joy in the midst of this otherwise dismal conversation with the pointy-headed bureaucrat that had come in from Washington. And at the end of this conversation, I, I, I have to say I was just crushed. I mean, I, I could just feel the energy was gone. Uh, my face was turning even brighter red than it already is. Uh, and this wonderful woman, the Syrian woman who had been an attorney, uh, looked at me and at the end of the meeting said, Dr. Casey, all of us in this room know we're going to be in a better place a year from now. Don't worry about us. And I was, first of all, ashamed, ashamed at my own privilege, ashamed on uh, my, my station in life, and also ashamed that I had underestimated the, the vision and resilience that was in this room, despite the fact they were living under just barely survival conditions. They came here for a reason. And it was a two-year pilgrimage through the security process to even get the flight to the United States. And I saw this everywhere I went, at every one of the six centers when I met. I saw an amazing energy, tenacity, and resilience uh, that frankly put me to shame because I took my privilege for granted. Um, so let me talk about one other city, and then I'll, I'll continue going on. Des Moines was a place where I saw astonishing innovation on the part of the local government. The school superintendent there was probably the most heroic person I met in three and a half years of traveling the globe. He was a man who had about 35,000 students in his entire system, and I think it was 8,000 of the students were either refugees or children of first-generation refugees. So it's one of the few urban districts in Iowa, which is otherwise a, a rural state, they tell me. And that's all I saw were cornfields outside of Des Moines, so I, I can't contradict him. He told me a remarkable story of a 15-year-old Myanmar young woman who was presented on the first day of school to the, to the school principal. And this 15-year-old woman had never spent a moment in any formal academic environment. But the law of Iowa says you, you have to take her and you have to teach her. So they, they have an assistant superintendent for refugee education, who is himself a Laotian refugee from the 70s. As his PhD in education, he was there to design curriculum and receiving protocols for refugee students. And I, and I think there's something like 40 different countries of origin in, in that school system of 30-some-odd thousand. So it's an astonishing array of students. So they had a battery of tests. 
they had people who could speak her language. They gave her the analog to the English test that they give. It's sort of testing your, your academic uh, comprehension level or aptitude. And she tested, I think it was like at fourth grade level. So in theory, she's ninth grade age, and she's fourth grade level when they, she goes to the battery of tests. In the course of one academic year, she jumped three years. So she post-tests at like the seventh grade level. Now the standards of, of the wizards in the, oh, I probably shouldn't say this, I'm being taped, uh, in, in the Iowa legislature ruled her a failure because she was below grade level after the end of one year. She was still two years behind, even though she had come three years up in one year. Now the, the faculty are high-fiving each other about the remarkable progress this young woman has made. They see her as this incredible success story but the traditional American pedagogical frameworks looked at her and said, no, I'm sorry, you're a failure. And this superintendent said, that is unacceptable. We're working miracles in the lives of these brilliant refugee kids, but we're being labeled failures because the system itself doesn't know what to do with these kinds of children. He then designed in, con in a concert with Drake University, a local university there in Des Moines, a master's program for his own teachers to provide them the linguistic, the cultural, and religious understanding they would need to manage a classroom of, say, you know, 25 third graders, a quarter of whom uh, were refugee kids and from who knows how many different countries. He could not find a graduate program in the United States that he could send his own teachers to and pay their way so that they could continue up the career ladder meeting the certification standards for, for teachers getting graduate education and get the cultural skill set they needed to be effective in that kind of multicultural environment. He then, so he went to a number of state, large state universities and they said, we don't, we don't want to play with you. And so he created this own, uh, his own program with Drake University. So he hires new freshly minted teachers out of the teacher <coughs> training programs and says, come in the next three years, I'll pay your way through this MA program. Uh, and the university said, of course, we'll, we'll form that partnership. So this superintendent, by his own energy and by his own entrepreneurship, created a path now of teachers who actually have the capacity to educate the children that are now presenting themselves to the Des Moines public schools. That's the kind of innovation across local and gov state governments that I saw. Des Moines uh, Police Department similarly had uh, a very interesting uh, program where they, they hired specific officers to be liaisons to specific either ethnic or religious communities. And as the one guy I met who had the, the relationship to, to the Burmese community, he said along the lines that when fists and bullets are flying, it's impossible for police departments to build relationships with those communities. We're doing a form of neighborhood policing where we're actually in the community with some degree of sophistication in understanding who these people are and what they're doing. Um, so let me summarize quickly in, in the interest of time. Um, so what did I see then uh, in these innovation, it, it, what did I see in terms of innovation in the, in the six refugee resettlements I visited? First, former refugees served as employees. Just simply to cover the linguistic demand, most of these centers realized our, our, our most fruitful potential candidates to do the work are actually former refugees. And of course that makes, that makes sense when you think about it, but it took each center having to learn it themselves that that's what they needed to do to be able to cover the linguistic demand and frankly to have somebody sitting across the table from you who's navigated this bizarre bureaucracy 
and his, you, have, you then have somebody who's actually been introduced successfully into the weird culture of America, uh, actually proved uh, to be uh, an amazing uh, success uh, on that, in that work. Secondly, diaspora groups played a huge role in helping refugees become American citizens. At every center I went to, I saw a dazzling array of diaspora groups who helped new refugees from their countries navigate things like professional certification, finding jobs, finding affordable housing, and helping children adapt to the American public, Asian, uh, public education system. Uh, I talked about the, the, the linguistic skills. Um, the nine national implementing partners select specific families. This, this is astonishing. I, I asked, how do you get from being a refugee in Syria to being located in Des Moines, Iowa by, say, Church World Service? And literally once a month, all nine agencies meet in an office in the State Department. And the State Department presents a roster to all of them, people who've passed all the security uh, traps you have to go through to be certified uh, to be able to come here. And they go around. It's almost like a baseball draft where the Red Sox, then the Yankees, then, you know, uh, the nine agencies go in order and they say, okay, here's a, here's a, uh, a Syrian Muslim family. We want to bring them to... Pocatello, Idaho, because at that center we have experience in successfully transitioning Syrian Muslims into Idaho culture. And they go around the table for a full day or two days until they literally have placed all of the people who are eligible to come. So these centers sort based on their own capacity in their local centers. And they, they don't take folk that they say, you know, this is going to be the first Syrian family in Minneapolis. Of course, that's not true, but I'm, just, I'm saying this hypothetically. We don't have the capacity for a successful uh, transition there, so we're, we're not going to take this family. And that means between the nine of them, they've got to develop a capacity to take pretty much any, any person from any part of the world. Um, the centers finally, number four, multiply the paltry U.S. government funding with dollars they have raised themselves. The centers realized that there were often massive gaps in government-sponsored resources available to refugees, and they took it upon themselves to cover the fiscal gap. Now, here's what I saw among local governments in terms of innovation regarding religion and refugee resettlement. First of all, school districts developed refugee-specific welcoming practices which required in the higher multilingual teachers, developed faculty development plans with local colleges and universities that were previously unavailable, and hiring administrators who've been refugees themselves. Um, I, I told you about the, <clears throat> the assistant superintendent in, in Des Moines and their partnership with Drake University. It's really extraordinary to me to, to see the innovation. Most public school systems in the six cities I went to understand they have to put special resources in to making uh, it possible for refugee children to successfully transition to the American context, and I had no idea that existed. Mayoral offices also set up well, uh, refugee welcome departments. One of my staffers told me about Boston's welcoming new Bostonians office, which I think now has been actually renamed the Mayor's Office of, uh, of Immigrant Advancement. Um, some offices offer city-issued identification cards when it was hard to get a federally or state-issued identity card. New York City has done this, uh, where thousands of refugees and immigrants are able to carry a government-issued ID card independent of where the relationship is with the federal government. An astonishingly brave and innovative uh, 
form of response. There are now many national networks of mayors to share best practices and lessons learned around refugee settlement. Uh, one of the most prominent of these networks has been set up by the New York City Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs. I attended their meeting this last September uh, where they had a, uh, a get an international gathering of mayors looking at refugee and immigrant issues and they all recognized, I think there were 175 global mayors there, they all recognized eroding national support for that work. In other words, most of them looked at their national government and said, they're not helping. If anything, they're making things worse. And, and the, the roster of, of countries where the trend lines are, are going the wrong way was voluminous. Um, but nevertheless, mayors have these people on their doorstep and living in their cities. And the immediacy of the need uh, leads them to share insights and lessons learned and to be welcoming. You know, if you're, if you're the mayor of Norfolk, Virginia, where there's now flooding every spring because of, of sea level rise, the mayor of Norfolk can't say, you know, we're going to take that up in Congress next session when they get back together. You can't kick it down the road if your downtown business flood every year. If your city has more immigrants and more refugees in it, the mayor is the one that ultimately has to decide, what are we going to do with these kids in school? How are we going to help these people find jobs? How are we going to manage this? Because we can't hide from our voters. We have to deal not only with, with these communities, but we also have to deal with the service provision uh, that they desperately need. So this is why, based on my trip and based on what I saw uh, this past fall at, at the New York mayor's gathering, the innovation has really been pushed down to the local government level. The national government now is not really interested in the refugee space. Finally, number three, police departments uh, are showing a lot of innovation too. I think under the umbrella of community policing. They hire police officer liaisons to new refugee communities to serve as conduits. Uh, in the face of growing unrest in many urban areas around race, police departments like the one I saw in Des Moines appointed these uh, community liaison officers uh, to refugee and ethnic communities working out of neighborhood offices, which I think is very important. So they've, they've wedded the notion of neighborhood policing to uh, understanding the increasing complexity of the pluralism in, in their own communities. And again, where the money's coming from, I, I, I really don't know. But smart local government are seeing the changes in the makeup of their communities and are redesigning and modifying their, their uh, service provisions, I think, uh, accordingly. So my basic conclusion was that for refugee resettlement, the work required is a whole of society approach. I saw new forms of interreligious cooperation that I'd never seen before at the local level. This sounds like a bad joke, but when I worked in, walked into the Jersey City Resettlement Center run by Church World Service, there was an imam, an evangelical pastor, and a female rabbi all whose congregations were within driving distance of each other in central Jersey, and they had never met each other until they all, all three of their congregations reached out to the leaders and said, we have a responsibility to deal particularly with Syrian refugees in New Jersey. Our, our governor is saying dumb things. We don't like that. We think it's part of our most deeply held theological beliefs to take care of the sojourner, the traveler, the stranger. Uh, and they all showed up at this re refugee resettlement center. What can we do? What can our community do? And of course, being a great center director, he said, you're going to be on my board now. You don't know that. But he, and he recruited them to be on his board. And there they were talking about. So a new form of interreligious work sprung up there in central Jersey with the common task of helping refugees transition to central Jersey in a more successful way. 
The federal government didn't order that. The state government leadership said don't do that. Uh, but it was local religious communities partnering with one of these NGOs that took federal money to help them do that hard work there in central New Jersey. Uh, I think it's a, a place where there needs to be deeper study to analyze how the relocation now of hundreds of thousands of refugees over the last decade in almost 200 locations um, has sparked new forms of interreligious cooperation in life together. Uh, some of the response has been xenophobic, but other parts of the response have been cooperative, and I think this is an underexamined area in our country. Mosques, temples, uh, synagogues, Christian churches are all working together now to welcome new Americans, and this local religious ecosystem is changing, I believe, in light of the newest waves of refugees and new forms of civic life have emerged and evolved. So as a result of my own trip, uh, the last thing we did in my office before I, I moved on was to collaborate with the European Regional Bureau and the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. And we put out a bid, and one of the religiously affiliated nine implementing partners won the bid to survey best practices and lessons learned on the part of these refugee resettlement centers and then go to Europe and share those best practices and lessons learned with civil society agents in 10 different countries in Europe. Now, different polities, different uh, religious ecosystems, so there wasn't a one-to-one -one translation, but it was my belief that there were practices that were working in the United States that could actually be replicated and implemented uh, across Europe as Europe is facing a much higher volume of refugees already in their country than was what was facing the United States. Um, now let me conclude briefly, and I'm way over time, for which I apologize. Let me say just a brief word about the increasingly difficult national political environment. Now I'm not trying to make a detailed political statement here. You can come to my dinner table and get that for free sometime. Uh, but what I want to say is that the result of new or impending federal prior policy priorities, such as the deep potential deportation of 800,000 DACA students, the reduction of the annual refugee admissions to the U.S. by over half in this administration compared to the last one, the attendant funding cuts to the nine implementing partners, in other words, all these agencies are now laying off people because we're not bringing as many uh, refugees into the country, it's having a devastating effect on these agencies, and the Muslim ban, which bans, at least if it ever finally or doesn't get disposed of by our, our, our judicial system, it's going to bar travel from several majority Muslim countries, uh, local government work is going to be harder. It just is. Because the national political environment, I think, is aptly labeled white nationalism. So it is about America first, and it's about white Christians first. And if you don't fit into that, if, if America's not your country of origin and you're not a white Christian, guess what? Federal policy is going to weed, weed some people out. And that's percolating down to the local level as well. So if you're in government and you're trying to do religious literacy and provide uh, uh, government provisions to folks across a, a more interesting and complicated religious tapestry, the federal government's not going to be your friend, I'm afraid, for the next three years. And that's just a fact, and you're going to have to understand that as you try to do your work and as you try to advocate for expanding your work. In the face of these policy changes and others, uh, cities are now increasingly in the foreign policy business. So I, I think mayors are now doing what was traditionally considered foreign policy. You're dealing with immigration. You're dealing with refugees. You're dealing with a federal government that's no longer your reliable partner on those issues. So 
In the foreseeable future, innovation at the intersection of religious literacy and government is not going to come from the federal government. My, my office has been dismantled. That work does no longer exist in the State Department. But it's going to be at the local level. So in an era of instability and uncertainty, there will be anxiety, there's going to be fear, there's going to be backlash. And that's going to be played out at the national level. If you're on the seventh floor of the State Department, you're insulated from that. Voters don't grab me on the metro saying, what are you doing at the State Department? Uh, but I guarantee you, the mayor's office in D.C. and the council person's office, you're getting the, the people pulling on your arm saying, what are you doing about this? And they're, they're pushing you in two different ways. But with this kind of uncertainty also comes opportunity for innovation that can spread and be uh, at the grassroots level. Uh, and I say this as a liberal Democrat. I have to say I, I believe in a robust role for the federal government. I really, really do. But we're, we're foolish if we think that's going to be uh, a vital partner in the next three years in, in this space. The innovation is going to come from the grassroots, and that's why the work that so many of you are doing is so, so important today in local government. And that's one arena where institutions of higher education that study and teach religion can partner with those of you in local governments and take up the hard work of democracy building together. Thank you. Well, how are we on time? I, Entertain some questions, and then the dean and I will join you at the, at the table. Okay. So it, we got a, time for a couple of questions. And no, there's a mic going around, so if you, okay. if you have a question, use the mic. Michelle, are you? As a Chinese-American Christian, I've been studying the whole history of exclusion acts in which um, our present president said that China was the number one enemy and he keeps flip-flopping depending on what he's getting. Um, <clears throat> but also, our country is the only country which defines itself as being Judeo-Christian. And I've been of studying that construction and whether that is a kind of Judaizing element that needs to be Judaized in an expanding Christology in which the third world is increasingly Christian and the Western world is increasingly secularized. Um, recently, Donald Trump, with respect to um, uh, Jerusalem, has attempted to speed up the process of um, making Jerusalem the capital of Israel, in which many people are contesting that from theological grounds. And what can we do? Because there seems to be a new synthesis of Zionism and also um, end times theology coming to a fore, not to also underestimate the, um, the capitalist uh, underpinnings of the Western economy, which seems to be um, zooming ahead in a very damaging way in which um, the energy foundations, i.e. fossil fuel, coal, and oil are not being dealt with in America. So how many years do you have uh, for, for my answer? 
Let me try to hit some, some high points across that because th these are obviously huge and, and complex issues. Um, uh, the whole Judeo-Christian phrase, I, I, I think, is, is, a, is an artifice. Uh, I, in fact, I don't think a majority of Americans could even explain what that is. America is not officially a Judeo-Christian nation. It's not even officially a Christian nation. We are a secular government. Now, there's some people who want to change that. So I, I guess I would not accept that particular premise as, as being accurate. Uh, I, I do think it, there, there is a, a speech that Steve Bannon gave uh, to the Vatican. He Skyped in, I think it was 2015. It was published by BuzzFeed. If you Google Steve Bannon, Vatican, and BuzzFeed, you'll get that. I mean, he, he tries to use, he, he paints a, a Muslim versus Judeo-Christian, Muslim non-West versus Judeo-Christian West. And to the extent you can find an intellectual framework behind what this administration does, that's where I would start. But uh, it's sort of a Frankenstein monster. It's not a, it's not a coherent uh, package there. So uh, let me stop there. I just want to say we will definitely entertain some more questions, but let's keep them brief. And, and there's usually a question mark at the end of a question. So let's, let's do that. And that would that'll be terrific. So yeah. thank you. So when you said a lot of people that you worked with that when you were going around the State Department would not, or not a lot, but some people didn't welcome you. Was that because they didn't think that religion mattered or they didn't think that you would be capable of understanding it? Like what was the skepticism? So let, let me be clear. Uh, I mean, all I had to say was Iraq. You know, that we, we willfully, were willfully ignorant of lived religion on the ground in Iraq and we invaded anyway. And no one in the State Department would say that really worked out well. Okay. So my argument is if we had had a, a robust understanding of the political religious context, which is far more complicated than just Sunni Shia in, in Iraq, we would, not, we would not have invaded, nor would we have tried to reconstruct in the fashion that we did. So people would, would not say, would never argue the point we needed a, a more sophisticated understanding. But then they would say, okay, big boy, what is that better way? Uh, and so they didn't, not that they didn't like my presence there, they were skeptical that there was a better way. Uh, now, I, I would defend what we did in three and a half years. I think we actually won the hearts and minds, particularly of the regional bureaus, because what we, we decided, we would go to them and say, show us your strategic priorities, excuse me, in your region, and I'll show you how we can come along and make you more successful in your own strategic goals. And I think among five of the six, we made that case on the ground working with them. So they would say, oh, we see it. We get it. Uh, so we, I knew from day one we were in the permanent persuasion business because the State Department either ignored religion or they had done religious freedom, which was sort of a ghetto. Like, if you wanted to work on religion, they, they kicked you over there. And I think everybody recognized at some level that countering violent extremism was a misfire. It did not deliver on what, what some of its architects had hoped. Uh, so uh, that, if I hope that nuances the, the reception. I think people were skeptical when I came in. There was very little overt hostility. Uh, but by the end, I think we showed them there were ways to have a more sophisticated approach that was designed on advancing specific American foreign policy. You know, as one guy said, you could have just been a shiny office writing memos, as we say, trying to change the world one memo at a time. Okay, and, and there, there would've, that would have been cool. That would have been fun. We would have written memos back and forth to the smart people on the seventh floor. But we would have been irrelevant uh, globally if we had done that. 
Hi. Um, you said that one of the uh, main uh, pieces of your work was working with external actors, um, faith leaders and, and faith-based organizations, I'm assuming, mostly. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about outside of refugee resettlement, where that was effective um, and, and where it was uh, really difficult. Oh, my. Uh, if you Google Religion and Diplomacy Conference, in Office of Religion and Global Affairs, what you will get, you'll get uh, from the State Department archives, you will get a, a schedule of a two-day conference we had at the end of my tenure there that shows you the issue sets that we worked on. So rather than reel off a list of 60 or 70 items, go, go there and look at that. Uh, we worked on, let me tell you about the difficult one, okay. I mean, there, there are thousands. I, I, uh, we worked on the peace process in Israel-Palestine. I, I was in Israel multiple times on, on both sides. So I engaged all three religious communities, Jewish, Christian, Muslim actors there, both there and also here in the United States. Uh, we invested a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in that. And to see what has happened in the last 24 hours is just an outrage. Uh, and my fear is that the two-state solution has died uh, I think neither leader politically, Abbas nor Netanyahu, now have the political ability to move an inch in terms of trying to come to an agreement and making concessions on both sides. Politically, they're both, uh, I think, very, very weak in their own community. And America's role as an honest broker has been badly damaged, and the question is whether it's been permanently damaged or not. So there's just a lot of consternation in my head right now. Maybe one more. Or oh, we'll take two more questions. You mentioned about a school system and a superintendent that was ex very successful in incorporating and supplementing for refugee and immigrant students that were coming into the system. So I wonder, my question to you is, what about the school systems that are failing these children? And what type of measures is the government putting in place, especially since most school systems are already underfunded? Right. Well, as you know, control of school systems is primarily at the local level. I mean, the federal government can throw money or withhold money to try and you know, move school districts in incrementally. What I hope to do is to take a, a field research team to Des Moines and one other city of comparable size and perhaps less successful than Des Moines and compare and contrast, particularly government services. Uh, I, I think part of it is we've got to tell these stories. The, the way you change hearts and minds is not by throwing shoes at each other in, in the well of the U.S. Senate, but you tell stories of success. Uh, and that's why, I mean, if I could, I'd, I'd, I'd put this school superintendent's face on every skyscraper in America, because I think he's a heap. But now he's also vulnerable, right? School superintendents can get fired uh, on the turn of a dime if a school board or a city council says, we don't like you anymore, we don't like what you're doing. So that's very, that's very fragile political space to begin with. So I take your point. Uh, I, I grew up in a family of teachers, okay? Seven of us, two parents, five kids, we've all taught for a living. So this is, this is in my DNA. I do believe innovation comes in education, not because the Secretary of Education stands up in D.C. and gives a speech and everybody says, wow, we're going to do it that way. I think it really is grassroots and it's, it's local organizing uh, that moves 
uh, school boards and moves uh, school superintendents. So there's no silver bullet, I wish there were, but I think at the heart of change uh, is, is local innovation and then local organizing around that. So that's that's a very bad answer to a great question. David David's got a question down here. Uh, just a quick question, Sana. I was just wondering what is left, if anything, of the of that Office of Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department and and what prospects would there ever be for it to be reconstituted at something like the same level ever again, or is this a, an experiment which will be a, a one-time only experiment? Uh, there, there are a handful of employees, like now maybe four left. Uh, Secretary Tillerson has written a letter of notice to Congress that he wants to take 10 of the billets or FTEs from that office and move them into the International Religious Freedom Office which I, I think is the, the death knell for it. And actually, I, I, that's my preferred option right now because my fear was they would keep it and they would hire a fundamentalist Christian to turn that into a, a shop that gave out free lollipops to fundamentalist preachers, such that if, say, there's a new administration in 2020 and the transition team comes in and they talk to a career State Department office and say, what about that Office of Religion and Global Affairs? And you go, ah, that's the craziest office we have. And the progressive administration would say, okay, we're going to kill that one. So, so my hope is it is, in fact, turned off and doesn't become sort of a fundamentalist reward shop. Now, uh, there are a multitude of, of institutional ways to get at this issue set. And so the, the form we took with a shiny office at the top was one way to do it. And I always told people if we did our mission successfully, we, we'd go out of business. It would be, it would be in, the, in the DNA of every foreign service officer that in addition to understanding politics and war and, and economics uh, and history, they also needed to understand religious dynamics in their country. So that we were actually trying to pedagogically get people to, to do that. So I, there are a multitude of ways that the issue set can be raised. Uh, and institutionalized. So, and I'm, I'm actually, I think we made the case, uh, and I think we made the case to more progressive folk in D.C. so that if, in fact, there is a, a subsequent administration that's more centrist, if not more progressive, I, I think we'll get a hearing on how to reconstitute the issue set. And it, again, it doesn't have to be an office like mine. It, it could be smaller. It could be dispersed across a number of the regional bureaus and things. I actually think that's going to, and I, I'm, I'm writing a book at this point, frankly, telling my story and trying to make the argument that however you configure it institutionally, this, this needs to be part of the skill set of our, of our diplomatic efforts. Well, thank you. We're, we're going to turn now and hear uh, remarks from Nadim. Again, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure. And, um, and I, I might, might or might not, depending on time, say a few words, and then we'll open it up again for, the, for, for further questions. Okay, so thank you again for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, uh, Professor, for really wonderful lecture, which I don't think went over time, actually. We just started at, at a particular time, and you finished it exactly an hour after. So. I like the way you think. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know how long I'm speaking, so I've got the stopwatch out. So I do about five to 10 minutes yeah. or something like that? Okay, great. Great, so I'm gonna go for like three or four hours. Um, <laughs> so first of all, thank, thanks for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. I think the topic of religious literacy is really important for a lot of the reasons that were mentioned. Um, the, the spot and the contextually 
um, relevant uh, religious literacy is beyond the ken and, and apprehension of any one of us. And so it's not just a, a question, as you said, of, of valuing religious literacy. It's, it's the, the question of valuing learning organizations and, and knowing and seeking uh, the information necessary to build a learning organization is, is outside of the grasp of most of government and I think a really important project for government and, and academia together. Um, I, I just had this knee surgery and right before the knee surgery my doctor told me you have the, the knee cartilage of an 80 year old whose knees are in really bad shape. <laughs> and so I'm gonna, I'm just enjoying taking on the role of like a, an older, <laughs> crotchety, and I'm just really going to let you have it today as academics. So I, I'm just giving you that. I'm just trying to be upbeat, but and, and just I'm going to be like upbeat and really aggressive, but try not to cross the border into caustic um, is my is my is my goal. Um, so here goes. <laughs> um, where we are in history is particularly a bad point, and I think a lot of us can feel it. I think actually a lot of us live the stress. I, I almost now. I can imagine the stress of what like a deeply troubled evangelical um, like pro-Trump Christian might have felt under Obama and just like see all kinds of amazing inclusive programs and just feel the stress every day. I feel the stress every day and, and um, under Trump. And how we got here is a function not of, of those who would assail us with their values and, and with their um, hard work and with their money, but actually a function of our own shortcomings. Um, so, so the professor, uh, Professor Casey, talked about uh, going from an F to a C minus to an F. That's where government is at, and that is the government that we worked for. It is the government that we deserve. That is the government that we funded with our tax dollars. That is the government that, when we hold up the politicians we like, that's the government that we actually promote. We get excited about. Um, that is, you know, the, the 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 best of our elected officials are responsible for this government. And when you go down to the state level or the local level, it is just as bad as you would expect um, or that you would fear seeing the federal level. And when I ran for office, I ran because I was shocked that the local level was not more progressive in action uh, and, uh, than, than it, it should have been, um, or as it should have been, and, and was in fact um, subject to the same self-promotion, obfuscation, and um, the large gap between espoused theory and theory and use that, that we see at all other local levels of government. So I think if we are to take um, any particular value from our religious teachings, it is that we are obdurate sinners, we, we have brought this upon ourselves, and that we must work our way out of it. I think for people in my generation, I'm 34, for those who are 18 to 34, we will spend our entire lives working our way out of the mess we are in so that the generation that comes after, those who are 0 to 18 now, might have some chance at economic prosperity and at um, both theological and um, uh, multi-ethnic in inclusiveness, the type I grew up with, which is now waning. And it takes ge literally generations in order to reclaim that standard again. Of course, if anything can switch and turn on the dime in the internet age, and it could be one or two years and not 10 or 20 years, but I, I think it would be it would be wrong for us to say that we are making up ground. We, we are not only in the worst state in history, and we are not only in the most stagnant state for the middle class in the last 40 years. Um, we are losing ground at an increasing rate. It's getting worse faster. The work is truly cut out for us. So 
with that, I, I agree with like 90% of what Professor Casey said, and I'm just gonna disagree with a, a few things here. Um, I'm just gonna pull out the things I disagree with. I, I disagree with your gut-wrenching refugee story where you said, and at the end, we're resilient, and how could we have privilege say that they're not gonna make it? Indeed, they're gonna make it. There is a much larger group of folks in this country, refugees, uh, black communities, immigrant communities, and other parts of the refugee community that aren't gonna make it, or that are gonna spend two generations trying to make it, and they're gonna spend the rest of the lineage of that family name catching up. And that catching up happens at a serious discount rate, where for, I mean, my dad was a, a immigrant of PhD extraction, and I am catching up for the discrimination in his life. I am still catching up for the monetary consequences of discrimination in the Iran-Contra era. Okay. Um, I will further what you said about education and said, you know, the education system doesn't know what to do with some of these children. I would say the educational system does not know, know what to do with any of these children, <laughs> refugee or otherwise, and that we are economically speaking in, in an unusually bad position for economic competitiveness and job training, um, especially in big cities. Um, I'll just loop around on my final point and come back to some of the fluff in the middle. CVE, unfortunately, um, yeah, the stuff in the middle. Hmm. I'll do the stuff in the middle first. Uh, okay, back to CVE at the end. Um, there are some things we need to do in academia and there are some things we need to do in government in order to get things back on the right track. The, the, I believe the outcome we are facing now is a direct result of incredibly savvy, incredibly powerful media and marketing. If you watched Fox News for one day, you would get enough hits of a single message to be an expert in that message. You get eight or nine hits in 90 minutes. And now you know why the Capitol's in Jerusalem. It's not true information. It is marketing information. Whether I pick iPhone or pick Samsung or pick LG is not a true or false statement. It is a statement of personal interest. And if I see enough iPhone advertisements tomorrow, I'm, my next phone's gonna be an iPhone. We are programmed by marketing. We are programmed by consumption. We are programmed by television. And most of this country has been programmed with enough marketing to shift its opinions in one day of watching television. And these folks, these consumers of television have seen this content for 20 straight years. And they are watching more than 90 minutes a day. It is no surprise to me that we are fighting an uphill battle and that we are engaging in clear conflict and the solution is not necessarily, um, I, I believe in civics, I do civic training for a living, I wanna talk if there's time about a civic app we're doing. The solution is not necessarily just civic, the solution is a marketing and engagement solution and the solution has to do with long-term education and engagement um, that we are not doing on the left at all. CNN is not marketing the opposite of this. CNN is just doing some other bullshit. And it's all incorrect, and it is all self-congratulatory, and it is all totally speculative and not based in fact at all. Okay. Indictment of academia. Colon. Um, <laughs> in order to be successful in academia, we must begin, and I say this as someone who spent too long in academia, but not long enough to have all the letters you guys have. Um, 
we do not spend enough time in action. You must pair your research, your knowledge, your comparisons, your papers with action. If there is no action, there is no good work. If there is no good work, there is no moral basis. If there is no moral basis, what are you doing? So I, I really think that we have got to be finding a system of accountability pairwise, uh, groupwise, uh, departmentwise, to hold, I'm now on 8.30, so we're gonna get there by 10 minutes, to hold each and every individual student to a metric of actual practice that does not exist in academia today at all, at all. And when I say at all, I mean like, some people do it and we all celebrate it, but celebrating it doesn't mean that we have actually engaged the outcome that we set to engage. It just means that we see some evidence of it happening. When I say it doesn't happen at all, I mean we are not along a set of milestones that would take us to the destination we have charted together, and we are not yet at the first milestone we would have set. If we would, together as a group, set a goal for this year in terms of actionable practice, I, I would posit that right now, we are not 11 twelfths uh, along the way to that milestone, or if we were to start the project today, one year from now we would not be one year along that set of actionable milestones. We do not in academia engage in practice, sorry. The end. Um, lastly, call for altruism before I go to CVE. Um, there's no altruism in government. Every single great person also has to get reelected at the end of the year. And so uh, when you say altruism in government, other people say that's so interesting, I would love if we could have that. Th there are altruists in government, there is no altruism in government. The idea of altruism flies in the face of pragmatism, you are not gonna get reelected if you are an altruist. And when I talk to folks about how they engage black voters, Muslim voters, minority voters, they say, do you want to engage more diverse voters or do you want to win? That's black organizers saying that. That's Muslim organizers saying that. And we can turn that tide and we can have a bigger pie and we can have more participation, but it actually has to start with caring about why we are doing the work in government and not just the salary and the position and the title and the celebration and the Veterans Day Parade. And I guarantee you that as much as we wanna do the right thing in government and as much as we wanna use religious literacy to engage the church and engage the mosque and engage all of these people in a contextually relevant and um, profitable, socially profitable way. The first person into the door of the church is the person who is looking for votes, and the second person in the door is the person looking for votes, and the third person in the door is the person looking for votes, and maybe the most junior, most naive, most new person to politics is going in the door fourth to get no votes and might have a little bit of an impact on the relationship between religion, religious institutions, and government. That's where we are right now, and that's happening all over the country. I have not yet visited a religious engagement or a religious institution that does not feel victim of the local elected officials' designs on their voters. Lastly, CVE. The marketing was too good. It's too well-funded, it was too good, and so now everyone thinks, as, as Professor Casey says, believes it was a misfire, and yet you still have a preponderance of Muslims, a preponderance of mosques, a preponderance of informants, a preponderance of right-wing Christians who think it, it didn't miss the mark, and they are still hawking something that is in uh, its death spiral. Um, uh, and no one essentially listened when the time was right, and no one spoke out when the time was right. And institutions like this could have had a leading voice, and instead were quiet. Um, and that's just another, another mark on the, on the actionability of um, uh, 
well, uh, the importance of, of action in parallel with our, with our research uh, hopes. So I went a little over. I, I say that all in the context of, I think we do great work. I think you do great work. I think this institution does great work. I think this is one of the best institutions of its kind in the world. I think everyone knows that. I think we just have a long distance to go if anyone here wants to realistically claim that we're gonna make up for the distance between us and the political actors who are winning in today's political conversation. And I think it's very clear they're winning, and I think it's very clear that we are not making up the space. So I, I wanted to be clear about how we do so and where we are now in order to hopefully inspire a little bit of urgency and a little bit of self-criticism. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to I'm going to just respond very briefly actually um, to actually also some of what you said Nadim and to also respond a little bit to you Sean and then we'll see Sean if you want to share your thoughts and responses to us and we'll hopefully open it up a little for a couple more questions. I'm I'm going to speak very briefly because I want to uh, settle in on this question of education which um, is something dear to my heart and I think a, a really key component of this entire endeavor, including so higher ed, but also K through 12 ed. Um, so my friend and colleague Zena, who asked the questions, uh, public school teacher. Um, the public school teachers of our communities are under-supported, under-funded, uh, uh, and we have very little support for the kind of education that they know they need to be doing to address an, any number of challenges that are facing our communities, but particularly related to refugees and, and immigrants. So I just want to put it out there. One of the fundamental things we can do is support your local public schools and support our local public school teachers. They are the front lines of so much of what happens in this country, and they are know that what's before them now our, our children who are vulnerable, many of them in what we call failing school districts, but exactly the scenario that you laid out, Sean, is happening everywhere where we've got teachers doing remarkable things with challenged populations and still getting, quote, bad marks and getting uh, failing, quote, failing grades by a, uh, an educational system that's moved from education for democratic citizenship to education for the market economy. And that distinction is a dangerous distinction and one that we really as citizens, I will agree with you, we as citizens need to step up to claim and act out of the democratic rights that we enjoy and to be more vocal about the nature of what we want and need our communities to represent. And the front line of this absolutely, I believe, is schools. And it happens in lots of levels. It happens with teachers, again, who know and know their, their constituencies, who build relationships with their parents, who build relationships with local communities, uh, religious communities, uh, where their students are members, to build opportunities for many democracies happening in these incredibly diverse classrooms where uh, opportunities for students to really know what it means to live deeply in a deeply uh, pluralist society and not a simplistic way to think uni in universal um, ways about the simplistic, simplistic ways we think about pluralism, but the, the deep challenges of diversity and to give their students a chance to really uh, learn those lessons 
in a constructive environment. So I want to say, first, we need to support our teachers. And we need to support them to be able to move away from a strangulation of a testing culture to a, a, a learner-centered, project-based, deeply creative culture where students, again, also then learn to do. They intellectually gain the skills and tools, the kinds of literacy, but then the opportunity to know that they are agents of change, they can make a difference, they do make a difference, but to be able to foster that in the context of schooling, I think is both incredibly exciting and incredibly important. And let me also echo your comment to say that absolutely, at the, at the undergraduate and graduate levels, we absolutely need to be more conscientious about the nature of what we are teaching and to what end and for what purpose. And this notion of being able to recognize that there are powerful intellectual skills and tools in what it means to translate complicated ideas to a general audience and to participate in what it means to then think about the moral foundation of what it is we are not only learning, but what it is we want to promote. And to have the courage to not uh, shy away from making the value statements that all education is based on. Education is a value-laden enterprise. It has to be, it has to be, it should be. To own that, to be transparent about that, and be able to be persuasive about the vision of education that we want to promote. Uh, and for my vision of education is to promote citizens for a multicultural, multi-religious, deep democracy. And to do that at all levels. And we at the graduate level, thanks to, frankly, Dean Hempton. And yeah, I'm going to brown nose him, right? <laughs> I, I, I love this man. He knows I do. So I don't care if, if, if people think ill of me for this publicly. Let me say that under Dean Hempton's leadership, we are moving in that direction here at the Divinity School, where we are taking our opportunities to forge pathways for our graduate students to deeply engage in practice, to be able to use the skills that they're uh, promoting and to create programs. A new one that we just uh, are getting ready to launch next year, a, combi a, a joint program with the Kennedy School where uh, it's going to lead to deep internships for our students with NGOs in a variety of different contexts. Uh, this particular one in the Middle East, but we're doing it in other moments and places here uh, in the U.S. as well. So again, it's, it's a broad way to think about literacy of many kinds, broad way to think about religious literacy because religion is embedded in motivating problematic ways to think about the democratic citizenship as well as really generative ways. So better understanding about religion helps us understand the kind of funda foundational questions that we're, that we're struggling with. So thank you both for your comments and your, and your um, framing for this work that we're going to be talking about, continuing to talk about tomorrow. Uh, and I'll close here and maybe we'll, Sean, if you want to have a few moments of response, um, we'd love to hear from you. So thank you. Sure, just, just three quick points. In terms of academia, uh, that, that risks stereotyping high school graduates. In other words, the high school, the students I see coming into college today and even in the divinity school want to change the world yes. through action. <clears throat> now, they didn't get there in spite of their education, at least in the ones I know. They wanted, now they're impatient with institutions and they're rightfully frustrated with institutions. Where I teach at Georgetown, we have a curriculum oriented towards action and, uh, uh, and practice. I, I'm teaching a course in the spring called Organizing for Peace and Justice, where we, we are looking at historical models 
of how to do this with an eye to assessing current attempts and then also with an eye to students designing their own kind of practice in the world. So I, I would contest the, the strength of that statement. I, I don't think that accurately reflects what's going on pedagogically around the world. And I'm not, I'm not defending every educational institution in the United States. That's not what I'm saying. It's more complicated, I think, than that. Um, on the, on, so here I think you're, you're too cynical and you're not cynical enough on, on the next two. I think you're too cynical on no altruism in government. Now, I, I wish you could have gone with me and seen what I have seen around the world the last four years. Okay, not only our government but other government. And again, I'm, I'm not again. I'm not saying well, all government's great because clearly it's not. But to, to simply say there's no altruism in government, I think is is an over overstatement. And let me let me just say on the CVE, you're not cynical enough. Because what, what's happened in the countering violent extremism space is the speed with which people have left that behind. Now, I have a lot of friends who ran organizations that uh, when they learned USAID had a, 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 a countering violent extremism program, they whited out the water drilling project and it then became water for countering violent extremism because yeah. they wanted to chase the money. What I do think now is there's an intellectual recognition that trying to have countering violent extremism is the colonizing trope through which all diplomacy and development was done was a complete disaster. So what there is, I think there's an opportunity to A, continue to cr critique that. Now the irony is the Trump administration is shutting almost all that down because frankly what they care about is killing more Muslims. It's a kinetic approach to use the jargon of DC. I, that's obviously going to fail. It's going to fail at the cost of perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives. But the intellectual bankruptcy of that is already apparent to people on the right, left, and center. What we need to do, I think, is have a much more, and this is what I tried to do in my own office. The special representative to Muslim communities worked for me. The special envoy to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation worked for me. We tried to develop positive ways of interacting with both domestic and international communities in the, in the Muslim world. I mean, what, what does that even mean? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a problematic statement to begin with. So I think there's an opportunity for innovation there. Uh, and the, so I, I, I guess, again, again, I think that's too <clears throat> to say that, uh, I, I forgot I didn't get capture exactly how you, you said it, I think the failure of the Trump policy of defeating radical Islamic terrorists, the both political, moral, uh, and uh, wh whatever label you want, failure and bankruptcy of that is already apparent. Uh, so I think there is actually an opportunity to rethink politically how in the world does our government relate to Muslim-majority countries? And I think there are models out there of how, how to do that in a much more robust, humane, and, and frankly, uh, effective for, for all parties a process. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. I, I just want to briefly clarify uh, two things I said. I, I think in the short space of 12 minutes to yeah. say what yeah. I said, of course, I was a little bit dogmatic and probably a little bit uh, unnuanced. But um, I, what I'm trying to say about altruism in government is that altruism as a project has waned and people have noticed that it's waned, especially in religious communities, and that that seems to be a particular function of the incompatibility of altruism and opacity, increasing opacity even with technology and broadcast in, in government, and the incompatibility of altruism and the current electoral climate and landscape where 
despite increasing information, voters are less engaged and less educated. Mm -hmm. So the things that, that successful politicians are doing to win are antithetical to altruism, and the folks, uh, and, and then those folks do win. So, well, right, so there's a self-selecting, egoistic, non-altruistic crowd, and those are the only people capable of winning in this, in this climate. So Congress' popularity rating is like 7% now. Okay. What I was trying to point to in, in my lecture was that there are new forms of altruism at the intersection of government and civil society, specifically yes. on refugee resettlement. And much of that is actually interreligion, interreligious in, in complexion. So, you, you know, I, I, I'm very skeptical of social scientific meters of altruism up and down in, in the nation. But I, I do believe you can, I can sustain the thesis that there are new forms of altruism at, at the local level, at the intersection of new refugees coming into the United States. It is also interreligious in, in a, a construction. That's worth examining at a deeper level. Again, I'm not going to look for Congress for a spike in altruism, I and mean, that's the wrong place to go hunting. I don't think it's the wrong place. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying I agree with you. I see that on the ground. Mm -hmm. I see that even with folks who make it into elected office somehow. I see it especially in civil service mm -hmm. and in and administrative officials okay. or appointed or otherwise. Um, but I, I'm saying that we must look for this in elected officials. It is the thing we have the greatest control over. And it is crazy to have abandoned hope for that. Oh, I, I trust me. I do political work in my spare time, uh, in, 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 and no, I, I don't disagree with you. In other words, I don't. I don't want Congress to be just populated by miscreants who are incapable of feeling altruism and love. I that, that, that's that's not my position at all. But to say, and so I guess I overreacted, saying there's no altruism in government. Uh, you're talking about elected officials primarily, and yes, sorry. Okay, so that I just want to make I'm that saying, distinction. Yeah, I was just saying that the format through which we elect people is incompatible with altruism, but it doesn't need to be that way because we have the control, the power, yeah. and, and yeah. ideally we have the education. You, you, you should run for office. <laughs> should never run. He for he did. <laughs> Actually, the, the good news is I think altruists won in Cambridge Council and in Somerville Aldermanic uh, uh, Alderpersonic Council. Mm -hmm. um, it, they got 12 out of 12 hours revolution in Dorsey's in the Somerville elections, mm -hmm. and the four people that I was supporting in this election because they were, I believe they're altruistic, won despite three of them being upsets. Mm -hmm. And I think we can get to a majority, which would be five out of nine. These things aren't impossible, but well, it's taken four context. years of nonstop work that didn't exist before. When I lived in Somerville in 1982, They've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just leave it at that. <laughs> the, the, the other quick comment I wanted to make about the other uh, other point you made is that, you know, as much as I want to have a contextual understanding and believe that folks like you or an army of folks like you can can do great in government, the folks who we are engaging with on the other side are gatekeepers, and in many cases they are using, especially Islam, but using religion as a point of leverage. And the tremendous opacity and the moving, um, the moving target of what their beliefs actually are in practice as leaders yeah. is incredibly difficult for someone like you, I imagine. Well, that, that's huge. But if, if you noticed, I, I used the language of engaging religious actors and religious communities. I did not say religious leaders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's much harder. But we, we definitely attempted and we tried to model because if you know anything about the organization of, of even national religious groups, leaders have a it's something they want to sell America and the State Department, right? And you, there's always a gap. I mean, this is almost like a, a, a fundamental premise of religious studies. 
Religious leaders give you one picture, and it's often radically disconnected. And so I said lived religion. So there were many countries where, you know, I, I went to Ethiopia, right, where I met with the, the formal state-sponsored Islamic Council, and they were all reading from scripts to Dr. <laughs> Casey. Uh, but they could not explain why over 100,000 Muslims had hit the street on the same weekend asking for democratic practices they were promised in their own constitution. So I tried to engage the leaders and participants in those street, uh, because I knew what I was hearing from the government-sponsored religious council could not account for what was animating these hundreds of thousands of Muslims in the street. So we, we, that, was, that was a fundamental premise for us, never take something from the mouth of a of national leader at face value in a religious community. Trust but verify. There was a certain kind of cynicism that said, okay, uh, National leaders have a view they want to sell, and they, they can't possibly know what hundreds of thousands of their adherents really think and believe at the street level. Now, as a State Department official, getting at that street level perspective is hard, but it's not impossible. We're going to use this pause to, first of all, uh, close the panel and move into the reception. And I'm especially going to close it now because I'm, it's clear that everyone fully agrees with everything I said. <laughs> So with that, I want to thank Sean and Nadine for your presence, and please join us for the reception down the hall. So what, what did you do?